Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now, on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week on the podcast, we have the one and only Mr. Eric Lorenz. He chats with us about his journey from Prague to the American bar at the Savoy to Quant in London. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So without further ado, please enjoy. Hello, Michele. So my name is Eric Lorenz. I'm the founder of The Claim Bar, co-founder of Birdie by Eric Lorenz Bar Tools. And uh, hopefully there will be more to come. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much for finding the time. Pleasure, pleasure. So, Eric, we have a lot to cover uh, because your career uh, spans for quite a bit of time. So let's go right into it. So first of all, we all know you for uh, your incredible bartending skills. But at what point did you first think about becoming a bartender? Uh, Very, very first was high school. So when I uh, entered to my high school, it was hospitality, kind of like hospitality management school, where we were covering all topics or all areas of FMB. So it was a kitchen, it was a front of house, back of house. And obviously when we were in a restaurant part or bar part, they came over that. So that was like a bit of a glance of bartending. And that time, I'm talking about 1996, seven. there were no bars or cocktail bars in Slovakia at all. And, uh, and so they couldn't provide us like a real information that we could go and see bartenders. So it was all just presented by our master and showing us some uh, videos of bartenders. But when I've seen this video of a bartender, I go, wow, that looks incredible. And surprisingly, that's uh, one of the first cocktails I still remember that uh, our teacher was demonstrating was the white lady because they were- No way. Yes. Because uh, all the, uh, the specs they had, they were from IBA. And obviously, ingredients of the white lady, it's not something super complicated. And, uh, and yeah, so there was a white lady, there was a gin feast and a few other drinks. I remember the first time I tried olives and I didn't know what the olive was because we were making a dry martini as well. So I took one quickly, put it in my mouth. I was like, oh my God, this is so sour. So I was thinking it was like some fruit, but it was super sour and very salty. I was like, oh my Lord, what the hell is this? <laughs> So yeah, that was the very, very first stop. And then obviously it, it didn't die inside of me, that curiosity, but it was just nothing around me. So I it was no such a thing like a cocktail bar or any source of information. And then I started slowly searching for like, where can I learn about this part in me? So I found some books and then I found a uh, advertisement that was for a final round of the Bifitzer cocktail competition in Prague. And I said, this sounds cool. I was a bartender posing with the two Bifitzer bottles behind his neck, pouring into a, and a shaker. And I said, this is awesome. I want to go here. So I went to a travel agency and I showed them that 
these dates, this is happening in Prague. Could you get me uh, accommodation, tickets for these events and uh, all the things to get me there? So they organized everything for me. I came with a big camcorder like this <laughs> and uh, I filmed the whole competition. I came back home and I started watching it. So that was like a first actual material I had. I, I think I still have it on a VHS in my parents' house that I recorded. And I started watching the guys, how they were doing this. It was like a mini world class because there were different challenges they had to do. But there were some challenges that you won't see today in a cocktail competition. And those were, those were the challenges which we were always doing at the Sabots, like where's the next uh, cash machine or what is around you? And, and the guys, they had to answer such a things as well. And it was like quite fun to see on a cocktail competition. Anyway, so I've seen that and then I completely got involved, like, okay, I want to know more about the bartending, I want to discover this, I want to learn more. So straight away, I found the Slovak Bartending Association. I phoned them up. I asked them, like, how does it work? If I can join and learn about bartending and so on. And uh, they told me, like, yeah, this is the course. This is the price. It takes, uh, I think it was like a one week. Uh, we show you some uh, videos of partners making cocktails. You do a test and we give you an international certificate that you can use all around the world and you can apply for a job as a bartender. And I go, huh, what I'm going to learn in one week? And I'm not even... Yeah, it's crazy. It's like, a, do you have a bar I can practice? It's like, no, it's all in the classroom. So you all study. And it's like, no, 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 no. this is not that I want to go. And then I found a book where the guy who wrote this book, Roman Ulrich, he was actually a former B-Fitter world champion. And it was a quite a massive achievement that someone from Czech Republic would actually become a world champion in B-Fitter. And he was actually trained by a guy who was teaching Tom Cruise in the movie Cocktail. So he, oh, that's so cool! Yeah, so his 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 mentor was actually I forgot his name. He he passed away, but he had a bartending school here in London, and he attended the bartending school. So he was like full on updated that what was happening like twenty years back. That there there were two cocktail bars in Prague. There was a Baxis and a Tretos, and that was it. And then some you know some few bars that they were making drinks here and there. But those were the two bars and he was one of the like a leading bartender on the market that instead of him opening a bar, he decided to open a school. And uh, I found him, I called him, but because I've seen so much flair on this, so I called him, it's like, hey, Roman, um, I just read about your school. I'd like to learn about flair. Boom. He put the phone down to me. No way. <laughs> yes. I was like, okay, <laughs> what's going on here? I tried again, phone him back. Saying, um, I like to learn about being a, a bartender, become a bartender. It's like, that's a different story because the flair is just one cherry on the top of a big cake. Because his school was literally about this. So the school was three months and Monday to Friday, every single day. In his book he had, he had 120 classics and every single day we went through five drinks. So imagine by Friday, you had to have 25 recipes by heart. You had to know them, how to make them. What's the garnish? What's the technique? What's our ingredients? And uh, every day we were just jumping behind the bar and he was just calling the drinks and you had to make them. 
And I remember my first, like a day three, you know, I was just taking it so easy that time. I was like, okay, recipe here, recipe there. And then I jump in the bar and he goes, okay, make me a Robro, make me a Manhattan, and make me a dry martini. It's like, Robro, Manhattan, oh, completely lost, lost. <laughs> and then I realized, okay, I need to, I, if I want to get somewhere, I really need to study. So I was just like waking up with that book and I was going to sleep with that book every single day. And then the uh, thing was that, he came to me saying, you from Slovakia? Because there was only one Slovakia and they were all guys from Czech Republic all around the country that they were attending the, uh, the course. And he goes, do you know what? I'm consulting on the first cocktail bar in Slovakia. It's just opened like a few weeks ago. And they're looking for bartenders. And I'm going there over the weekend so you can come with me and do some action. So, wow, okay. So I went. We went to Bratislava, arrived to this amazing, beautiful small cocktail bar in the heart of Bratislava, about 55 seats, all are so updated, so cool, and uh, for me so new that time. So I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I never forget my first step behind the bar. I jumped behind the bar and the first guest came. He was standing next to me, he took order. He just told me like, okay, make this. I don't know what was that drink. But I remember my hands were so shaking and I says like, this is not cool. If my hands will be shaking like this, that will be so embarrassing when people will watching me making drinks and my hands were so shaky. And, and, and I wasn't like nervous. I just had this something inside of me that uh, my hands were so shaking. But that's, that went without even me noticing that uh, actually I'm not even shaking anymore. So what happened next was we went back to Prague and uh, the owner of the, the, the bar, he called me back again saying, would you like to come over the weekend, the next weekend? I was like, yeah, sure. So everything went so well. And because the bar was the first bar, got so busy, everyone was just like cocktails and give me the thing with the green thing inside with the weed. I was like, ah, you mean mojito? And with that, it's become so popular and they were still short of stuff. So what was happening... And he, he wanted to meet there for every single weekend. So for three months, I was going back and forth between Prague and Bratislava every weekend. And, uh, and after when I finished my course, he, uh, he just offered me a job full time. And uh, straight away, I had a job. So I started there and uh, stayed with him about three and a half years. And that was, How uh, old were you at this stage? I was 20, 21. 21, eh? I was 21 and when I came to London, I was 24. In January 18, 2004. So when I came to London, it was just like a big dream because I decided to learn English. I wanted to learn more about bartending. And again, it was another thing that in Slovakia, I couldn't see any information. It's like all the information I found about bartending were, were on internet, all in English. Couldn't understand a word of it. Same time when I was at, uh, it was a Greenwich cocktail bar. That was the name of the bar. They opened a month later, they opened Paparazzi where Stan started working. And Stan was already traveled around the world. He was bringing books, but all the books he had were all in English. So I was like, couldn't understand the word out of it. So I decided I need to go to a country where I can learn English and learn more about bartending. And I said, I can't think of any other city than, uh, than London, because London, it's close, two hours fly, 
and it's massive capital and has so much potentials. And when I arrived, I just see the city just like, wow, they have something big here. First thing I did, I came to London, I bought a uh, bar guide and I slowly started ticking uh, the boxes. And over the weekend, I had a language school Monday to Friday. And over the weekend, I was going through the bars because I was looking for a job, obviously. I need to find something where I could work. So how was language school for you? Was it like challenging or did you pick up uh, quite quickly? Think what I've done, when I came to the language school, I've seen lots of people from Czech Republic, some from Slovakia, but big community of uh, South Korea. So when I came to the school and I, everyone was on the first day, everyone was talking their own language. And when I heard Slovakians or Czechs, I was like, okay, I'm not going to that table. And then I heard uh, Asians, I was like, that's kind of cool. So I go there. So I sat next to Asians. I sat, <laughs> I sat around uh, all the guys from South Korea. So you learned English and kimchi at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, man, they were, doing, <laughs> they were doing kimchi. So I started living with the guys as well. So uh, when I looked for a flat, so one of the guys was uh, renting a big flat and he had a room available. So I was like, yeah, I want to live with you guys. I love this. So I moved in with the five Koreans. Oh, that's awesome. And the kimchi was fermenting in the kitchen. And they were just like, my God, what the hell is this? That no way. I no idea. So they... They do their own kimchi, so they kept the kimchi fermenting like 24-7 kind of thing? Yeah, in the kitchen, in the kitchen. So no way! <laughs> First for me was like, what on earth is this? And then it's like, kimchi, kimchi. So I tasted it, it was like, this is delicious. So that was the, that was awesome. my first uh, contact with it. So, and then, uh, so the way how I learned was I tried to avoid anyone from languages I could speak. So when I had, uh, because I have Hungarian surname, so there was a very famous Hungarian singer with me in the language school. When I told my mom, like, this guy is with me, she goes like, what? He's like one of the most famous singers. Like, really? <laughs> and I was, I was playing on him because I said, no, I'm not. I can't speak Hungarian. I'm from Slovakia. And then the guys were from Slovakia. So where are you from? I said, I'm from Hungary. So I was like, I tried to play them that I can't speak the mother language which you are speaking. So I was always playing the opposite to make sure that... Uh -huh. We don't use the language. That's probably helped me a lot because I picked it up within, uh, I think, within six months, I was working in the, in the bar. I was already mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. capable to, to take orders. And uh, I was, no, it wasn't a bar, it was a nightclub actually. I started in this nightclub. I was uh, as a busboy. So the busboy back in that days, so I don't know if it still exists. I was actually kind of like an assistant to a waitress. So not even to a bartender, but to a waitress. <laughs> <laughs> so, basic, so the basically the way how it goes, that uh, the waitress, she had four tables. And if the guests came, order a uh, bottle of champagne or a bottle of booze. I was the one who ran, brought the ice bucket, bought the glasses, and she would just pour the champagne and then I was just cleaning, bringing fresh glasses. That time still smoking inside, so cleaning the ashtrays and brushing the floor because people just didn't care. They just were throwing the cigarettes on the floor. <laughs> yeah, I was like, my God, what the hell is this? I never seen this. But I was like, okay, it's like zero responsibilities. 
you just yes no that was the answer bring ice yes uh, bring glass yes <laughs> it's more yes than no the answer as well <laughs> that, that, exactly that was it that was it and then uh, obviously uh, i really wanted to show that i want to work behind the bar it was like i worked before behind the bar so they gave me opportunities so i became a bar back behind the bar so it's like oh finally i'm i'm, I'm actually behind the bar but it was a it was a nightclub where people were just drinking uh, a vodka red bulls and uh, jd and cokes but anyways like at least i've got something i'm, I'm in my world of bartending and uh, become a bar back become a head bar back and then I was kind of bringing friends in. So uh, when Marian Becker came to London, uh, I got him a job there. So he was working with me in that club. We both barbecuing. And then uh, we both become a bartenders. I mean, but what a barbecue team, eh? Yeah. You and Marian Beck. <laughs> if they knew. If they knew. What they if they knew, eh? Barbecue team of the century, man. <laughs> yeah, it was because we were uh, such a hard workers. Like then the, the bar manager, Still remember him because I'm in touch with him on Instagram, Llewellyn, South African guy. Like he loved us. It's like, Eric, do you have some more Slovakian guys? Because we were such a hard worker. So there was a moment that in that nightclub, we had like five, six Slovakians or Czech guys because they were such a hard workers. That's so cool. And uh, at what point uh, have you actually had your first proper bar job? So... Right after the club, because what happened, we both Marian realized that that was like, okay, this is not where we wanna get stuck and just like let's move on. And then Marian through someone found a contact that they're looking they were opening a, a living room on a head on street where now is a Gordon Ramsay uh, head on street kitchen. And this is like the look, looking for uh, bartenders there. So we both went there, but it was kind of like a part-time job. We didn't work full time there. And then it was like, we need some proper job because it was like every, before every shift, you had to do a free pour test. And you've been told like when you make a cocktail that uh, you have to flare and we hated it both. Like we don't want to flare. We just want to do a proper service. And it was so annoying. And it was like, okay, this is, this is not what we want to do. And then we both found a job on, again, on the same street, but different bars. I went to this Japanese restaurant called Nozomi on a Bicham place and uh, on the end of the Bicham place used to be the sister bar of lab, the townhouse. Okay. So Marianne was there in townhouse and I was at the, I was at Nozomi in a Japanese restaurant. So we were still like close to each other, relatively close, just on the same street. And, uh, and then we started going around the bars, checking out who is what doing. Uh, Montgomery place was opening. And, uh, and, and I don't know if you heard about Drink Boy. So there was no Facebook, no Instagram. So there's a guy called Robert Hess. He's a co-founder of uh, American Museum of Cocktails. And he's a Microsoft engineer. And he came up with this and it still exists. Look it up, Drink Boy. So it was an online platform where bartenders would chat about different topics. Oh, Super cool. cool. So that was the first kind of our Facebook where you could chat, share ideas. And I was constantly sitting on it and reading what other guys doing around the world. And they were very, very interesting topics. And then uh, I found out uh, Nidal Ramini was writing on it and uh, he wrote about uh, Montgomery Place. So I found out actually on the Drink Boy that uh, Montgomery Place is opening. And 
when I was reading about it, I was like, this place sounds super cool. So I told Marian, I was like, Marian, this, I've heard about this new bar in, uh, in Nothing Hill. Let's go have a, have a look. So we went, Marian loved it. Ago Perone was there, it was an opening team. And then what happened? Ago still remembered that Marian stolen the menu because obviously he loved it so much. <laughs> and, uh, and Marian straight away applied for a job there. And then uh, I've got a job after that. Uh, he told me that uh, Giuseppe Gallo was his regular guest. And he told me that, hey, I've got this guy, Italian guy, Giuseppe, and he works in this Sanderson Hotel and he's looking for a bartender. I was like, okay, I'm uh, happy to see him because I was like, I'd like to see some, try something new, different. Now this hotel bar could be interesting. It was a trendy new, very modern hotel bar. Sanderson Hotel had two bars and one of the bar, proper bar, was only for residents. And it was tiny little bar, like 10 seats really reminded me Japanese bars and that time we were already going to Japan to see the bars, what they're doing, how they're doing. So I was very influenced by that, but, you know, learned all the techniques, ice carvings, took some lessons from Kawasu Ueda, but it says like, I cannot use this here in these busy bars, you know, ice carving, nobody really care about us. Like in this tiny little bar, I can really take my time and play with the ice and that was the first time actually I, I ordered an ice block and I had to explain them just like make me a solid block without any shape, size or anything because they were not doing that. They were just making uh, statues from it. They were not selling that time ice blocks. So I had to really explain them. It was like, I want just like a solid block of this size and just send it over to me. Did you manage to like, was it difficult to try to convince them to give you this sort of product or? Because like that time they haven't had the standard size so they were making the blocks from uh, you know through that big big machine the block was 150 yeah, yeah. kilo 120 so, kilos, so, yeah. yeah so he told me the price is like 150 pounds it's like mate you know you're selling me frozen water it's like how are you charging me 150 pounds and he goes yeah because it's 150 kilos like okay i don't need a, a freaking uh Mammoth, I just need a, a small block. So I explained it because I've seen them in Japan. I've seen the blocks like it's just like a 60 centimeters on 20 and 30. So he cut it on for me. And that's how the whole thing started here in London, basically. So, so he sent me essentially a, invented the bar block. Yeah. Or like imported it into the UK. Yeah, because they were doing the statues. So they were already freezing those blocks, but they were making statues. They, were, they, were, they couldn't think of like, oh, this can be used for bars because obviously they were not a bartenders. So, and how was uh, the experience at the Sanderson's Hotels? Did you manage to apply these things that you wanted to? Mm, yeah, partially, yes, but we thanks to Giuseppe's help that we, we kind of transformed the whole bar because uh, the purple bar was only a vodka bar. So he opened us a vodka bar, 160 vodkas on the back bar, and that's it. Nothing else. No way. Imagine 160 vodkas. You had some house wine, house champagne, and uh, okay, you had Speed Realm, so that was uh, Blackwood Vodka and uh, Gordon's Gin, Jack Daniels, and something, something, and that was it. And I looked at him and I said, well, I think we could do something more here, right? We can do something better. So it's like slowly, slowly, slowly. So slowly we started below the display. I was building, I got a... That's where I got the, you remember this from Savoy, where I've learned uh, the, the, the champagne boxes to build the shelves. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's where it started. It started at Sanderson Hotel because it was a Christmas time and our house champagne was Don Brennan. Oh, not about the house champagne, huh? It was super exclusive. <laughs> so it was uh, very exclusive. And, uh, and during the Christmas, the Don Brennan came in, uh, in the gift boxes. Very solid black boxes. So I was like, this is perfect. This is perfect. So it's black. It's almost invisible. Solid. And I built the whole entire back bar <laughs> with those boxes. <laughs> So below those 160 bottles of vodka, I built another pyramid very slowly. We just started buying because we just couldn't say it's like, oh, can we buy 10, uh, 10 rums? So we always were saying to our managers, like, ah, oh, we had this guest here and he asked for this rum. So ah. can we buy it? So it's like slowly, slowly, slowly building. And it was like a year later, we had fantastically stocked bar because I remember that time, our house rye whiskey was uh, Van Winkle, 13 years old rye. That was our house Oh, food. yeah. Back when it was still available, that was a fantastic rye, yeah? And, and I remember the words Colin Dunn told me, Eric, this whiskey will be so valuable. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to put one on side. I'm going to put one on side. But that never happened. <laughs> never happened. And then never one arrived. And then I said, oh, my Lord. Colin was completely right that this whiskey becomes just so rare and we couldn't find it anymore. So yeah, so that's uh, with Giuseppe, we built that, uh, we built that bar, built that. And then I thought, okay, I think it's time to move on because he became a global ambassador for uh, Martini. Mm -hmm. And uh, ideally, I was like, I'd like to work in a new opening, do a new opening, be a part of a new opening. So gain some new experience because, you know, if you have a bartender as a dream to open your own bar, you you need to learn how to do it from a scratch. And I never had that opportunity here. So, and that time I heard the Connor bar was opening. That time I already knew Agostino. So I contacted him. It was like, I've heard that uh, you got the, you apply for a head bartender role. I apply. Actually, he was appointed. He was offered the job, but he was kind of still thinking. He wasn't decided. So I just went for an interview, had one interview, second interview, and they said, okay, we like your profile, we're offering you a job. I got, a, got the contract from HR, but I was holding it. They, they keep calling me, Eric, can you send us the contract? And I was like, I got did he sign the papers? Because I'm just, I was just waiting for him to sign. It's like, if you don't sign, I'm not going to go for it. Because I want, I want to work with the best team I could. And I've seen in him that because I knew at the Montgomery place, he was doing an amazing job there. And I said, I really, really want to work with him. So it, it took him quite a while to, to make that decision because for him it was also a big step, you know, coming from a street bar, such a young age to go to hotel bar, because that time I'm talking about 2008, it's nearly, yeah, it's almost 12 years. That time you haven't seen so many young bartenders in the hotel bar. So the hotel bars were not that popular around that uh, you had Ritz Hotel, you had Dorchester Hotel, uh, Savoy was still closed that time. So Duke's Hotel, and that was it. But if you went to these bars, Claridge's, if you went to these bars, you found like bartenders who've been there working like 30 years, uh -huh, uh -huh. keeping their, uh, their territory. And, and there was a very old school bartending. It was like, I can't imagine how I could work with this. Like you had all this, I was reading... Uh, uh, books from El Bully and see these old guys. It's like, if I tell them something, what I read about the book, he won't even get me. It's like, how I can work in this bar? But I thought with Agostino, with a young team, 
you can do that in the in a hotel bar. So the moment he signed it, I said, okay, I'm up for it. Sign it. Ricardo Semeria was in an opening team as well, and uh, well, Stefan uh, uh, Santino Cicciari, he was the bar manager. He was a excellent, uh, excellent bar manager. He actually worked at the Blue Bar. He came from Blue Bar. Oh really? Yes. Oh, small world. Yeah, 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 yeah. And once, uh, once uh, everything got kicked off, it was amazing that uh, each of us were so into it and it was amazing opening beautiful bar and a young team I still remember we were doing the new menu we were doing it in the but one of the butler's room on uh, upstairs with no air conditioning just one fridge and that's how we did the first menu with Agostino I was still at the Sanderson so I was I was already full time on creating the menu and I was doing like uh, before work or after work I'll come and join him bit couple hours bit some development and and then once my uh, probation finished at the like the resigna- resignation finished, I, I, I joined him as well, and and that was it. We were super super excited to work in such amazing bar in an amazing hotel. Uh, probably one of the most uh, iconic things that you've introduced uh, together with Ago. I'm assuming there at the Connaught is the Martini trolley, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. How did that idea come about? Yeah, the Martini trolley was such a cool thing that. So Ago had this idea of, of taking the, the, the martini to next level and offering those different bitters. And I was more looking into the practical part, the theater part of it. And I was, every time when we were serving that, they were, had to be served by two people. So if you order a colon martini, two people had to come and serve you. Because one would come with a tray, had all the bitters, the mixing glass, and the martini glass ready for you. And the second one, the bartender, he would be presenting you the bitters. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that normally would take sometimes even five minutes. So imagine for five minutes, two members of staff standing around on table. And I was dying behind the bar, tickets coming out, people around because um, it was just busy. And, and uh, another bartender, because they were on shift, they were only two bartenders. So one is out and uh, one is just behind the bar. And so it's like, this is challenging. And then uh, that was a moment I was going a lot to Japan. And in Japan, I see this elegance and just uh. so much attention. And then I was like, why don't we bring the whole that experience to a table by doing a trolley? So the first thing was we, we approached David Collins who designed the, the whole entire bar. He said, yeah, guys, I can do it for you. 60,000 pounds. <laughs> we all went, what? 60,000 pounds. It's like, this is crazy. But that time, uh, that time I was in this uh, Tanqueray number 10 Martini Guild, which was founded by Angus Winchester. And he was just debating about Martini. It was always 10 bartenders. And uh, just meeting up here and there and just talking about how can you do the martini differently? What's your ratio? What's your vermouth? What's your technique? What's your garnish? And this was him because he loved that, you know, being so punctual. And I was one of the 10 and uh, built this relationship with Diageo. And I went to Diageo just like, guys, would you be interested? And I drove. I did a drawing. Like, this is how I imagined to do the trolley. That we would have the vermouths, the gins. So we can come to a table, not just with one gin, but with few gins. So I did my first drawing and I presented to them. It's like, we are looking for something like this. 
And the guys from there just said like, yeah, we can do that. You do it as a, you do it as a signature would be the time code number 10 and we can build the trolley for you. So that was with Colin Dunn because I had a good relationship with Colin. So Colin, uh, I called Colin and I told him this and they loved the idea. So he introduced me to the guys. And uh, that time was, it was the first trolley was designed by Wesley. So Wesley came in and he just like, gave him a brief that we're going to make it very chic that you see the Connaught bar. So he looked, he sat down, pen and paper, he, he did his own draft. I told him a briefing what we looking uh -huh. for. And he did beautiful trolley that was just a masterpiece taken from the interior of the bar design. That's how the trolley was born. And uh, what was the reception from your guests? Like, did they like it or because it's still there? So it, it it's certainly still there. It's, uh, hey, we took that. We took that trolley once even to Paris. I saw the video on YouTube, actually. We took it to Paris and uh, that was a crazy one because we were wondering how we're going to take this. And uh, I looked it up on a Eurostar and the Eurostar was two ways. You can carry uh, music instruments or sport equipments. And this okay. is like, you cannot carry furniture. And this is like, this is a furniture. So I goes, you know what? I'm going to circle it that this is a, this is a music instrument. And Ago was like, you crazy? Like, look, we're going to wrap this up. We will wrap it. We close it. And all what you just see, just the wheels. And it says like, if you close it, we will play it that we are, we are musicians. And this is a little piano. <laughs> <laughs> piano trolley. <laughs> So I filled up the form. I had to fill up like a special form on uh, that you are having an oversized uh, equipment. So I said, yeah, we have, this is the little piano. So we put it on, we took it there and that's how we introduced it. That's a little piano. No way. And it didn't catch you because you managed no, to it. No, because it was wrapped. It was wrapped up. So if you just looked at the legs. <laughs> that's legendary. <laughs> if you looked at the legs, that was just a uh, wheel. So you couldn't see it. And uh, nobody could imagine it's like, that's a trolley because that time who had trolleys nobody had trolleys so and, and it was amazing because with that it, it created more attention to it and i think tatler magazine even gave us an award for that as a best uh, best martini experience for that so we actually went to a tatler awards we made like freaking uh, 300 martinis in uh, 45 minutes it was an amazing experience and not a great story which uh, we had with the with the trolley was that when uh, when you were walking into a Connaught bar, as you enter, the first area was made of marble. The middle part was a carpet, and in front of the bar, it was marble again. So when you were going through these sections from the bar area towards to the entrance, you had to go through the carpet, and this carpet was uh. best folk made. And every time when we went into it with a trolley, the whole thing was just shaking and things were falling off. And I remember that time uh, David Collins came into a bar and he was there with Gwyneth Patro and he was just showing off because he loved the trolley. He was bringing people in like, hey, have a look. This is amazing piece. This is the Martini trolley because it looked like the bar. So people couldn't tell that wasn't his design because it looks exactly like the bar. And he was super proud about it. And when he was there with Gwyneth, I said to him, it's like, we have a little problem here. It's like, every time I'm coming to this carpet, the whole thing just shaking. And he goes, hmm, okay, leave this with me. And within 24 hours, we received the email saying, the bar is closing on Sunday. Like, 
what's going on. You're doing a little adjustment here. They cut the carpet off, put the marble down. No way, so you could go with the trolley. He said like, no, 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 we need to do it. And he goes like, we're going to do a little catwalk <laughs> here for the trolley. So if you go now, if you go back to Conrad, have a look. In the middle part with the carpet, then there's this marble that wasn't there. He just told him, he said, no problem, I saw this out. Cut the middle, put the marble down, job done. The power of celebrity endorsement, eh? As well, but in the same time, this was uh, this was the statement of people who really care and they have so much uh, attention for details and they just want to make it perfect. Okay is not enough. And that was the beauty thing about it. And that's that's what I loved about Kono, that it was all about making it perfect. Yeah, it's one of the common things about Mayborn as a hotel group. They have this thing that if it's not perfect, it's not all right. Exactly. They will change it. Totally. So uh, during your time at the Connaught, actually, the first time I've seen a picture of you, it was on the um, Evening Standard. Uh, this was because of your work class competition, which happened while you were at the Connaught. Yes, I, I was still at the Connaught. That's right. Would you like to talk to us about that? So the work class competition came that uh, actually I was uh, first, I was supporting uh, Ricardo because he was competing in the first round, 2009. And uh, I was just looking into it. It's like, what is this competition about? It's like, I need to do this. I need to do two cocktails to present. So it's like, okay, that sounds interesting. So I helped him to like how to prepare to do the drinks. And then uh, me and Ago, we just went to see him. And uh, he made it to the UK final. And uh, we were watching him, watching him, watching him. And he's talking. He made it to the top 10. And he's talking, 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 making, making, making the drinks, shaking, shaking, shaking. Suddenly he pours in me and I'm going just like with our eyes, just like, oh, you want more ingredients, want more ingredients. And he pours into his glass and suddenly the drinks come too short. And we knew what's going wrong here. But he was in such a, such a delirium that he didn't notice that we didn't put a tanker attention in it. Oh, no, man. That was basically, he was this much away to be, uh, to, to make it. But he completely forgot it. And, and that was, that triggered my things like, okay, next year I want to try world class. So I went for it. I, I found it very interesting. It was a very cool uh, challenge that uh, it wasn't just one round and one drink. You had to prepare for a few even in the London Heath, London Heath was already like uh, two serves. And then when I made it to UK final, it was amazing because the final was already like a mini global final, global heat. That there was a speed round, there was uh, the market challenge, there was questionnaires. And then uh, slowly, slowly you were qualifying through until uh, I suddenly ended up in the final. So I was with uh, Stevie from Edinburgh against him face to face in the final round and, uh, and we both just had to make one drink and it was just to catch the attention of the guests versus making a nice like a eye-catching uh, cocktail and uh, I was working so much on this because that was the last drink so you know when you do like okay how I'm gonna make it to the final maybe I'm not but I still like I want to make sure that at least I have a drink ready in case I make it there. So I had a drink, I had a drink ready, but I never even thought about the name because I was like, come on. And suddenly I'm in the final and when I presented my drink with the, there was a coriander base with yuzu, fino sherry, imagine 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I made a drink with yuzu 
for user juice um, that time was like nobody even knew what is user juice here because I was already going to Japan and br- bringing all that stuff in with Fino Sherry again Fino Sherry that time was like oh that's granny's drink oh, but try it in the cocktail worked perfectly and coriander and I made a, I call it like a botanical steam where I combine all the basic botanicals you would find in a gin uh, steep it in hot water and throw it into a dry ice so you had this amazing fog which had this aroma of all the botanicals, which I was kind of linking into the tanker number 10. And that was the winning drink. That's made me to a global final. And that was, that was amazing thing. But what was the funny thing about that, that I presented the drink and the, and the speaker, what's his name? I forgot his name. He goes, so Eric, what's the name of the drink? And I had no name for the drink. And I goes, mm. And I just looked right, and uh, that time logo of, of, of the theme for the world class, the actual was rising the bar. So I just looked at that, and I see the sign, and I said, uh, rising to the sky. <laughs> That's it. Boom. Name done. <laughs> and that was it. That was, I was like, yes, this is amazing, because of the steam was coming up. It's like, rising to the sky. <laughs> That's legendary, man. It's like, literally... <laughs> Named it on the spot. That's it. That was enough, though, to win. And that was it. So made it to made it to a global final. But right after that, because I was just like working, like there's no tomorrow. I wasn't taking any holidays. Santi Nachicheri came to me and like, Eric, you haven't taken a single day of holiday. If you don't take them, you're gonna lose them. You need to go home. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go home. At least I had a time to prepare myself. So I took ten days off, and I'm at home reading 40 pages of, uh, of the uh, rules and um, and uh, last a uh, few days before end of my holiday I'm out with my friends and one of my friends goes like hey do you want to come and taste some wines my uh, my father had some amazing wines so, oh yeah let's go so we went to his uh, wine cellar we tasting a couple of wines and as we were walking upstairs dark cellar couldn't see anything low ceiling I just hit my head so badly against the ceiling that I broke my teeth, like badly. Um, I look at the mirror, it's like, oh my God, I, I, I can't go to work class like this. It's like half of my teeth were missing. Next day, straight to a dentist, fixed that. Following day, I flew back to London. I went straight to work. And in the evening, I started having this headache. And this headache was just getting worse and worse and worse. I had one painkiller, second painkiller. I came home from work, not a painkiller before asleep. And like four o'clock in the morning, I was in such a bad pain that I just could not move. So in the morning, I had to call Ago and all the guys that had some, I can't even move. I don't know what's going on. Like my whole body feels like I'm paralyzed. This was a Friday morning and uh, I need to go to a hospital. So I ended up in the hospital. Luckily, the hospital was just across the street where I lived that time. I go to a hospital and I said, like, I'm having this pain from head going to my fingertops. I can't feel my fingertops going all the way to my legs and I just feel terrible. And the doctor says, just take some painkillers. Excuse me? Like, I took already five and I came to a hospital and you telling me take a painkiller. It's like, I'm not leaving this ambulance until someone else come and check me out because I'm not taking any more painkillers. So they looked at me and like, what? Yeah, I want to see another doctor. And they goes like, yeah, but we have to wait here for an hour. I was like, I don't care. I will be waiting even for two hours. I don't mind. Uh-huh. So I waited. Doctor came, called me in. 
took me to a scan. As they, I was coming out from a scan, I collapsed. Suddenly, I just wake up in a room. <laughs> I'm in a hospital room on a Friday. Suddenly, Barry Wilson is calling me. Eric, are you ready for this filming? You're doing for work class shot? It was like, Barry, I'm in a hospital. <laughs> I've got tubes in my veins. I don't know what the hell is going on here. <laughs> It's like, what? Shit, no way. It's like, really? So keep me posted because we're flying on Sunday. Sunday we're flying to Greece for the global final. Okay. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, I don't know what's going to be here. Like, okay, let's see. I stayed over Friday in the hospital and, and the pain was just not disappearing. So they started like, what happened? Have you had any accidents? Something happened to you? Do you have a car accident? It's like, no, nothing. Uh, and then I was just like, wait, I just, I remember last week I hit my head. It's like, ah, so we know the problem. They did the scan again, and they see when I hit my head, my tooth hit the nerve, but the nerve started dying like three days later. So I already forgot that it actually happened, and the nerve started dying in, inside my uh, jaw, and it was incredible pain. So I ended up in the hospital for like uh, overnight. Next day, I just got a bag of painkillers and antibiotics. And I just asked them, like, tomorrow I'm supposed to fly. Am I okay? It's like, yeah, yeah, just take this and uh, you will be fine. So that's how I came to World Class Global Finals with a bag of painkillers, antibiotics, antibiotics and my equipment. It must have been very nice and relaxed, I guess. It was relaxed because uh, I wasn't drinking any alcohol because I was obviously taking the uh, painkillers. And for me, it was just like focus purely focus on the presentation and uh, and try not to, to, to mess it up. And that's probably helping because I've seen that time, you know, some people, they see it, oh, this is an opportunity for great party, lots of free booze. And, and I said, for me, this is an opportunity to get somewhere and, and, and do something. So I took it very, very seriously and I was super focusing on, on my rounds and, and that's probably helped me that I was just there and I was just focusing on that. How did it, uh, well, obviously it went very well. Like, what sort of recommendation would you give to someone who's going through the work class? The thing was, it was so un unpredictable. It was like, I couldn't see. I didn't even have a thought that I could win it because the challenges were so tight. And uh, when I see the next bartender who was before me or after me, I was like, equally as good. So I had no hopes whatsoever. And, uh, and for me, it was just like, only one, one thing is just like, you need to try, you need to go because work class is when you, when you go there, you bring in your whole entire experience. It's just like, try not to focus on what is that two minute challenge is about, but what you learn in 12 years, bring it to that two minutes of presentation. And that's how I was seeing it because there were challenges, which we were completely, uh, you couldn't prepare for. It was just like a challenge on the spot. They give you, I think it was like 50 euro. That was a market challenge. Market is down on the road, buy ingredients. You have 50 minutes now, bring them and, uh, and create two cocktails. And over there, it was just like, okay, what I can work with, seasonality. First thing, what I can, what is in the season now? So I went through the market, tried the fruits, which are the tastiest one, and uh, came up with the two drinks. And those are the kind of things. And it, this is something that you learn through like today that you keep uh, learning something new that uh, you can then implement into it. That's how I went through that. How did you feel when uh, you've realized that you won? The thing was, when they were announcing it, I was like, 
okay, maybe I can get a challenge because they're balancing the challenge winner of each. And then I said, okay, I think in a speed run I was doing pretty well. Suddenly speed run was von uh, Heinz Kaiser from Austria with a broken finger. He broke his finger before work class and he won the speed run, which is insane. I said, okay. <laughs> I was probably not that good. But you all crippled during work class. Yeah, we were all kind of like, you know, survivals, uh, like went through some sort of <laughs> injuries. And, uh, and then was another one I felt quite confident was the food pairing. I think the food pairing was one. And, uh, and the classic cocktails. I felt confident there. I set up my bar. I did so much that put myself into a perfect preparation mode and uh, and then I thought okay maybe that challenge and then challenge is gone I said okay this is oh, just sitting on a chair heads down and uh, there's a guy next to me Adam from Australia he was next to me and then and the winner is GB and he just knocked at me and said what is that me and I was like I can't believe it I can't believe it and, and I couldn't believe it either because when I came back to London I almost forgot my trophy there we went away to the airport and they asked me, like, hey, where's your trophy? I said, damn, I left it at the hotel. So the whole bus had to turn back, go back to the hotel, get the trophy back to the airport. But when I came for me, it was just like a bit of a moment, shocking moment that after that, I literally started realizing that actually something big happened because it just slowly was building up and building up and building up that phone call from here, message from here. And then we would like you to help us on consulting on this. And we want you to work on this with us. And would you be interested to taste these chocolates? Like so many things. And then uh, following year was where the work class next year kicked off. So I was just like flying a ref flight center, getting involved with everything. And then uh, shortly after, I've got the offer from the Savoy Hotel. So you were uh, overlooking the reopening of the American bar, which is probably one of the bars that defined our industry. How did you feel about, like, how was the task ahead and what were the challenges that you faced and how did you go about it? So the challenge was quite big because, because there was a big opening, obviously, iconic opening, you know, that uh, it wasn't just the bar, it was the hotel and, and so many things that uh, need to be looked into and, uh, and most importantly for me was like a big decision to make because I loved the, uh, the Connors. I was very happy there with amazing team. I remember the, the week when I, I came back from Greece, from the global final, I won the world class. I came back and Ago and Santino, they went to New Orleans. And a few days later they flew back and Ago International Barton of the Year, Tales of the Cocktails, and we won the hotel bar, best hotel bar of the year. So in one week we picked the world class, we won the tails and I was working an amazing team. I was just like, I love this. This is the best team, best place. I can work and be a part of it. So I wasn't really even thinking to go elsewhere, but they offered me this. And then people start saying like, Eric, this is a big decision. This is a big opportunity for you. And, and I think you should, you should definitely go for it. So when I said, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm taking it. Then I just realized that like, whoa, this is something super, super big because it's not just a bar, it's, it's the legacy, it's the history of the bar, it's the people who work there and you need to be you're becoming a part of that, that circle and, and making sure that it's not going to fail, that the bar will be still recognized and it'll come back 
to the map of uh, the best bars. So myself and Daniel, we were we were the opening team, and we just like we just need to preserve the bar. We just need to start from scratch, as the bar was known for with classic cocktails. So Daniel suggested like let's do classic cocktails. I said like okay, we do that, and I just perfect them. I just came up with the recipes that uh, this would be the techniques for to make the dry martini this way, make the daiquiri that way, make the Ramos Fizz this way. So every single classic cocktail just to make them to perfection. And that's how the American bar started. So the first opening menu was actually just classic cocktails. And then uh, because we've been close, the bar was closed three years. So imagine those people who were coming there for years and they obviously been super excited to come back. And you don't want to bring in something which was, I don't know, with the airs on the top or infused with this and that. They just used to have known the American bar as a, such a classic institution. So it's like slowly, slowly, we need to get to know these guests and make them feel comfortable that with the new reopening, with the new team, new management, nothing has changed. You're still welcome and you found this place always as your favorite place and uh, always your, you will find your uh, PSS cocktail there as you wish. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but I think one of the things that one of the, the elements of your tenure there that took me a while to, for me to fully understand was the, your ability to be the perfect bridge in between what happened before and, and the new trends. So you kind of brought the American bar into the present era of bartending but you still managed to keep a strong relationship with the past and i think one of the strong things that you did was the relationship that you kept with the previous head bartenders which is something that not uh, everyone would have thought of doing but you kind of excelled at it haven't you yeah well uh, for me it was one of the biggest uh, privilege that when i became a part of the american bar team and then i just looked back i started digging into that it's like okay Salim was still in the team, so I worked with Salim Curry. But it's like, yeah, Peter Dorley. I met Peter in the work class. But it's like, who was before Peter? So I asked Peter, it's like, Peter, I've got this uh, information. He says, uh, Victor Gover, and then uh, can you tell me about this? And he goes, man, we meeting once every Sunday. Come for us, uh, come with us uh, for lunch. And suddenly I, me, young kid, show up for this uh, day uh, meeting. And suddenly there is... Victor Gover, Salim Khoury, and Joe Gilmore. And I was like, oh, yes, met Joe Gilmore. And then I was like, so Joe, he was the longest working head bartender. So imagine that. So when I met Joe, this is like, so you were there when uh, you met uh, Harry Craddock. And he said, yeah, Harry, uh, well, he met Harry Craddock on the autumn of his life. When Harry retired, he always used to come still to the park, Embarkment Garden. He says, like, he used to come to the park. And I used to go and see him out when I said old Harry. And, and, and for me, that was like, oh my God, what I've got here, it's something so unique and so rare that we have to capture this moment and, uh, and share with the world that this is one such a unique bar that has a legacy of so many bartenders and half of them are still with us. So we should celebrate them. And that was again because thanks to my dear friends from Cocktail Spirits, uh, that's when they called me to do the presentation on the American bar. And, uh, and that was Savir Padovani. I said, I was like, Savir, I have an idea. The idea is 
that I will talk about the American bar, but I don't want to talk myself. And he goes, what do you mean? I want to bring all the living bartenders with me to London, to, to Paris. It's like, you crazy, you sure? It's like, fund the budget and I'll bring them over. So I said, no, 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 this is so job done. Yeah, definitely. Yes, we are, we are doing this. So I, I came to the bar. I told Daniel, it's like, Daniel, we have amazing opportunity presentation at Cocktails and Spirits. And I have an idea what we're going to do. And uh, we will bring all of us. It's like, what do you mean? All of us? It's like, yeah. Salim, Peter, Victor, we all go. I was like, you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All done. I created a presentation. And the presentation was starting when the American bar was like a billiard room, as you remember. The cigar and whiskey bar. And then Javi was uh, developing until the closure and the new reopening. And that was the slideshow. It was starting from the very, very beginning till the closure and reopening. And then I goes, and with the reopening, and behind this legendary bar, there were legendary bartenders. So I was like, with the reopening, I'm the current head bartender, but before me, there was someone else. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Salim Curry on the stage. And suddenly Salim Curry walk on the stage. And everyone goes, oh, first time I'm seeing Salim, and all in white jackets. So Salim came on the stage, obviously Daniel as well, because he was a part of the opening team. I did him a couple of questions and I was like, and uh, before selling, there was a one and only who no introduction needed, Peter Doherty. Suddenly Peter comes. So there was a half an hour of talk. Classic. <laughs> As Peter likes. And I was just like, shall we carry on? And everyone in the room was just like not even breathing. I was like, what's going to happen next? And this probably would nobody would expect that there's someone else who is with us. You might never heard, might never seen, and today you have opportunity to see Victor Gover. And suddenly Victor Gover walks on the stage. That moment, nobody was breathing in the room. And Victor comes and he had the medal. He received OBA from a Queen. So I told him, bring that medal. And I put him on the stage on his chest and I was like, this is the D bartender who been awarded by Queen by his, for his services. <laughs> and then I was like, and I've got another one. And that moment people get like, I cannot believe this. What is this? It's like, okay, one is still with us, but can't be with us here right now. And that's Joe Gilmore. So what I did, I recorded Joe. Uh, oh, cool. I recorded him. So I put him on the stage. I put him on the, on the screen. So Joe was just sitting in the bar and, and talking about it. And that was, and then we went from Joe to all the bartenders still who, who were there. And that was, Probably for me, the one of the most uh, memorable moments with all of them that we created such amazing uh, celebration of these bartenders who work there and we could be there. And, and most importantly, uh, let the others know that these people are not forgotten because this would happen a lot in the past that lots of legendary bartenders that they just suddenly when they when they retire, they just got so forgotten. Because this is what happened to Harry. He wrote one of the most iconic cocktail books. And uh, when he was dying, when he was passing away, he was even buried in a communal grave. He had no relatives. He, 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 he lived in a healthcare house. And apparently, and I remember Jared Brown told me once that uh, Harry Craddock was his era. He was so famous that even Madame Tussaud had his statue there. He was that famous. Imagine that. So if a bartender has a, a statue at Madame Tussauds, that means you were someone. And all of a sudden, you are suddenly nobody even recognizes you. 
So I thought this is something cannot happen. This need to change, and uh, uh, I want to make sure that all these guys who, who who were before me that they live with us. They they we celebrate them till today. Well done. I mean, that's uh, that's certainly a major thing to do. Like to be able to share your uh, presence there with everybody in the industry to make sure that this legacy is carried over. During your time at the American Bar, you also had a separate venture where you managed to open your own bar in uh, Bratislava. Yeah. So, so how did that uh, come about and what were the challenges that you faced? Uh, that came about that my business partner, Carol Sass, he was actually the guy behind this first cocktail bar Greenwich I was talking about. So he was the owner of that. And since ever since, now it's like more than uh, 19 years, we're still friends. So we kept the contact. And uh, I remember we were in Berlin, Barcom in Berlin. And, uh, and he goes, so it was after 50 best. So we had a 50 best and then Barcom in Berlin. And we were there and he goes, Eric, I'm looking at this 50 best. I'm looking at the bars and I'm seeing so many great Slovakian or Czech bartenders working in these great bars and on a list of 50 best and and I feel so bad about that there were so many of them coming from our country but there is no such a bar the country itself it has no bar which would be like this is the world class bar and it was like I really would like to change this and bring those bars because we had amazing period where bars in Slovakia in Bratislava particularly were doing so so well but then everyone started leaving the country and suddenly the bars, they lost their essence. And, and he told me like, do you remember this coffee shop we used to go always just off the main square, which was just like a couple of meters from our bar I used to work. It's like, yeah, yeah. I've been dragging this owner of this bar for like 15 years and uh, I'm still doing it. And after 15 years, he told me, if you're still interested into that bar, you can take it over because I'm tired of it. So I was like, okay, I went home. Went to see the place, it was like, okay, it's super old. It's been like for 15 years, exactly the same. Nothing has changed, but it's like tiny little place. It was like, we can do something very, very cool here. And he said, okay, we can do it as a partner. So I don't want you to be as a consultant or I don't want you to just do me a favor. You do it as a, as a partner in, in, in the business and uh, just come up with what we can do here and hire the team, do the program do some do do the redone the bar and we can do it so it's like okay that sounds uh, good to me and um, the thing about the place was that in the 1950s it started as an antique store because that was very popular in in, in Bratislava there's so many antique stores in the whole town and then the guy who owned it he sold the antique he sold the shop and the guy who had it for more than 20 years was like an antique cafe so he had a little cafe there and was doing his business there. And, uh, and it was such iconic, it's, it's a, such iconic uh, style because it's a high ceiling. The chandelier, which is in the bar we have, is still from the antique store. Whoa, so that's uh, 70 years old. We it never touched old. it. We never touched it. We just, we couldn't, when we were doing the renovation, we, we didn't even take it off. We just kept it there because it's just so old. And yeah, so we kept so many things. The wooden paneling from one side was there. It was then on the other side. So I just like, let's do it from the other side as well. So we extended the wooden paneling. And because the space is so small, so we added mirrors. And I designed two perfect stations for bartenders. And uh, and that's how the whole thing started. And then I remember that Stan was doing some research 
and he found that there was, a, I think in the 40s or 30s, there was an American bar called the American Bar. I was like, okay, this is cool. I love that, that there was American Bar already here. So let's uh, bring back that because this is an antique place. We just keep that theme. We just changed the antique cafe. With a, it was mm -hmm. an antique with a K to antique QA. Uh, American bar because it used to be American bars and put the white jackets on and build this very old-fashioned little bar out there and and that was the moment where I've seen that uh, that uh, Slovakia needed a little bit of a kick to realize it's good that you you're doing your own research on being creative and unique creating your own cocktails but in the same time you you, you need to be a bartender that when the bar guest comes into a bar and he tastes all your signature drinks but his favorite is a Negroni and you are unable to make him a great Negroni, then you need to do something about it. And that was the problem in Bratislava. I've seen that you went around the bars and you asked for daiquiri and it was still made with Rose's Lime Cordial. I was like, come on guys, step up, dig into the recipe and then you see that it can be done much simpler and much better and tastier. So I said, what I really want to do here Kind of like a reintroduction to all these classics that what the Bratislava bar scene was created when I started working in a Greenwich because we had all number many was Mai Tai, Mojito, Daikiri and all those drinks and all of a sudden people now know those drinks but they haven't had any place where we could have the perfect Daikiri, the perfect uh, dry martini or the Irish coffee. So I created a menu which was based on like 10 classic cocktails you should know through the day because we were open all day. So it started with the light drinks and moving forward towards the end, like Vicare. Vicare at that time in Slovakia is like, what is Vicare? Yes, Vicare is uh, as old as this building. So you should might know about it if you're a bartender. So we brought back all those and that was the whole ethos of uh, of the antique to, to bring back that that uh, beauty of classic and uh, beauty of simplicity of, of drinks. And uh, so shortly after that, uh, you have uh, come to the conclusion of your tenure at the American Bar at the Savoy. So how did that come about? <laughs> that uh, the short conclusion took nearly eight years of, uh, <laughs> of thinking and researching and finding the courage of like, okay, it's time to open a bar. But uh, it was three years of negotiation on, on, the, on the project, on the space, on the lease. So I've been, I've been at the Savoy and uh, three years and was already going to that site, doing meetings and uh, negotiating and uh, waiting, most importantly waiting because to, to get a new lease, it took us nearly 15 months to organize that. So three years took the whole thing when it comes to a stage where in 2018 I've got all the papers in front of me saying you're good to go it's all happening now it's no longer just a dream it's no longer just on the paper but soon it's gonna be a reality just need to do the next step and then just step out and 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 uh, go for it so I said yeah I'm definitely going for it I feel now is the time because if it's not now then when and always wanted to do this and uh, always uh, was dreaming about a bar here and uh, in such a beautiful city as London and especially the location because for me it was a location was so magical I didn't want to rush to just 
open a bar just for the sake of having it open, but the location yeah. is so unattractive or so difficult to find because this is a thing in London. Like if you are not in the right location, we have a problem uh, that we are not chefs. That if you open a little restaurant in the Bry and you are, if you are great, you are able to book it out for six months in advance with the bars, it doesn't work. No matter no, how, no matter how great you are, it's still just a drink. And, and I said, like, I like to stay here in Central. I know it's not easy. I know it's not cheap, but uh, I'm sure there will be a day I, I can find it out. And, and uh, luckily, this was the site that I found. It was like size, perfect. Location, perfect. The way how it's built, perfect. Because I could do so many things that I always wanted to do. And so I'm very, very happy that it actually all came together. And uh, it, was, it was a long journey, for sure. So how did you feel when you handed in your notice at the Savoy? It was a, I remember it was a very rainy day. Classic. And uh, yeah, very, very, uh, let's put it, a wonderful uh, weather in London. And, uh, and uh, I had my day off and I called Declan that uh, I'd like to meet. And he, he told me after that, like when, when I called him and I told him, like, I, I'd like to meet you and I'm nearby. He said, okay, I knew there's something coming. Yeah, it must have felt it, right? Yeah, yeah. he said that the moment you called me and he said, you are nearby, which means like you were prepared for already for something and that's just not just like, hey, what's going on? What's up? So I came in and I said, hey, Declan, I've got this opportunity. It's, it's coming all together and been working on this for like nearly three years and we are in the final stage, just about to sign the papers, but it's going ahead. Um, and I want to go for it. I want to take it. So he just hugged me, shook me as like, congratulations, well done. Uh, just keep it for yourself. As like he said, I couldn't tell anybody because I don't even want to anyone know then apart from you. And then I'm just following your instructions to you tell me what you want me to do. And then how are we going to do all this? So, but he, he really, really took it uh, so nicely that he organized a uh, meeting with uh, Hamish, Hamish from uh, Drinks Business. So he booked the Royal Suite and I did an interview with him. So I had a kind of like getting this all out, like what is coming, what is happening. And uh, Hamish, because Hamish was called in and without telling him like why we wanted to come in. So Declan actually sent him a limo to pick him up from home, bring him in. So Hamish was like, what the hell is this? There's something uh, big going on here. So it's like, okay, yeah, I'm coming, I'm coming. So he came in and I was just sitting there looking outside of the river. And then he walked in and it's just like, so Declan did the introduction, you know how he does. And it's just like, so Eric like to tell you something. And I was like, yeah, I'm leaving. And Hamish was like, what? What's going on here? Oh my God, guys, pen paper, just <laughs> me write this all down. <laughs> So yeah, it was super emotional. But uh, you know, I think just to say a, a quick word about Declan, who's the current uh, bars manager at the Savoy, is uh, that he's such a great manager, not only because he's great at what he does, but because he has your own development in mind. And will, he, he's the kind of guy who encourages you to move on if he sees that the opportunity for you is correct, right? Totally. Cool. So talk to us about Quaint. Uh, what's the brief? What's the main concept? And how did you go about opening it? So when... I uh, found a quaint that was uh, through Douglas Ankar. 
So Douglas came once to Savoy and he said, so, hey, what's up, man? What are you up to? What are you doing? What's your plans? And, and then I said, you know what? It's been going around for so long that there's rumors that Eric's leaving at the Savoy. And that was, I remember, I think, two years after when I started working there, Daniel called me to the office. I was like, Eric, I heard that you're leaving. What's that about? He's like, what? Yeah, there's a rumor saying, do you want to tell me something? I was like, Daniel, do you have my notice in front of you? No. It's like, then I'm not leaving. And then it was again, again, like three or four times. I was literally like serious rumors that I'm leaving. And I said, I don't even know about this, but anyway. And then I said, you know what? Because this is all going around, I just was open to talk about that I'm opening a bar. I'm looking for a site. And if someone comes to opening a bar, it's like, yeah, am I open? No. Did I resign? No. Then I'm here. Just take it as I'm here. And I was just like, yeah, I'm looking for a site. I want to open my own bar without like, but please don't tell anyone. I was like, but if you don't tell, then uh, you won't get anywhere. Month later, he literally calls me like, hey, uh, you know Murad? Murad Mazuz, the owner of Sketch and Momo? I was like, no, but I heard about the places. Yeah. I was like, he's got one site I'd like to show you. So I met him. He took me, met at the Momo at the terrace, and then he took me downstairs and says like, oh my God, what a sight. I walked in and I straight away, I could imagine it's like, I know exactly what I want to do here. I know exactly that this, it's evoking me to create something because when I walked in, it was black walls, a black ceiling, dance floor, and DJ booth, and a bar which has been there for 20 years. I said, everything what is here, just out and turn it into something very tropical, warm, because you are in a low basement, low ceiling, to make it almost like, almost like you are not even in London, like completely take your mind away from here to create something very tropical, almost like a, a, a different version of Casablanca. And, and, and do it in a very experimental way that we keep the design to make it look as it is, what you see today, but uh, I don't want the drinks to be uh, tropical. I don't want to be like a, a tiki bar. Something which I've been working on for so long and I always wanted to get it out. It's like, what is the modern drinking of today? If you go to a bar and uh, you want to have a drinking experience, what should be the drinks you should taste or try? What are the techniques you really want to work with? And uh, in the bar, we had this little like a, because it was a nightclub that time so they created kind of like a vip room and i said i want this to close and here to have our playroom where we can play and work and develop which i always was missing so much as you know in the savoy all the preps behind the bar before 11 o'clock which yeah, is insane space you see so and i was like come on we need to push this game up because we're in a 21st century you go to a a, a restaurant and and you see the chefs have so much tools to work with play with and and uh, you go to a bar and you're doing almost your prep on your on your knees because you have nothing so with that it was amazing combination of creating something where i can even execute it. it's not just dream about it talking about it but you can't execute it. so for me this was the crucial part that i want to make sure that i create a workplace where everyone who comes in works that they enjoy the work while they are there no matter how busy you are how stressed you are that you're still enjoying it because obviously busy being busy and stressed it's part of our, our work if you 
if you don't have that, probably you were working in such a boring bar, <laughs> nothing happening there. But the most importantly, it's to have that uh, possibility to work and develop, self-develop yourself constantly that you're working on, on yourself and doing something cool for it and being a part of it. So I was like, I want to bring everything out, which I always wanted to work with. So to create what you see in a nutshell, but creating a drinks list that would be purely focusing on, on the product technique and uh, and uh, telling something to guests how we achieve that and uh, seeing the final product that just in a beautiful uh, hand cut uh, design glass by ourselves. So I worked with the designer who I told him like I want to have a shape of the martini glass, shape of a highball, shape of a rock. So all the glassware I've designed with the designer rather than just go to shop, pick highball, rock, martini, whatever, and use that. So it was like every single element I want to be involved to make sure that create a perfect synergy of the great bar experience and uh you're happy about it like uh, because now you've been doing it for quite a while so are, are you satisfied any challenge that you think uh you didn't see it coming or are you quite satisfied yeah like um, there are so many things i could do i would do differently this time like you know more uh prepared so many things in advance because obviously once you're opening a bar it's all about time and money so but that's how you you go and learn through the process so overall i think uh, what came out it was uh, amazing because uh, lots of dreams i i we have or we had on our menu last many was all created back home in my kitchen because i left the savoy and i had no place to work so i was just like experimenting in my kitchen and, uh, and finally having the opportunity to see them in all life i said like i couldn't wish for more because i know how much hard work was behind it that's uh, required to get there where i am today so i'm, I'm very pleased but that's uh, i think i was very lucky as well at the same time because i had amazing team i have amazing team that uh, worked on this and made sure that everything what i had in my mind on the paper it actually came to life exactly as I was imagining it. Like from from the moment when I've seen the space, like building the cabinets when you're entering for the vintage bottles, to to creating a uh, corner for uh, for uh, tap cocktails, to building Evogro system where we grow our herbs inside the bar. So it's so physically it's inside the bar behind the dispensation. And it's like it's so many things that are just like if you plan it so much ahead it might just like oh this doesn't work this can't work this you know it's like when you put suddenly things together you realize like oh you made a mistake about 20 centimeters and suddenly that doesn't fit here and all of a sudden all those things just kind of perfectly are set up there that that just like i'm i'm so amazed that actually worked well so that uh, we are comfortable can work and do such a high volume you wouldn't even think of that's fantastic. So what's the plan for the future? You're planning to open more venues? Well, future plan is open again the London venue first. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's very true. That's because very true. we are in a very difficult situation right now and we're just waiting and hoping that it's actually come to an end and uh, as we close, we will reopen, hopefully reopen very soon, which unfortunately at the moment we don't know yet, but I think the main, uh, I don't even think of anything else apart from 
getting the this started and and then just carry on with this and you know i'm always open for anything that is interesting that uh, if something comes up someone would say oh love the concept love what you've done and i'd like to bring this to i don't know to thailand or indonesia and if i see there's a great opportunity why not but uh, at the moment obviously i'm not uh, not in my mind to open uh, 50 bars and do a massive chain because I know how much dedication and uh, time required to get there where we are and that wouldn't be possible like yeah it is possible but then you need to go from the your goal is 100% you will be probably achieving 70 mm -hmm. so you're an extremely well-traveled bartender can you tell us one market that you visited that really surprised you surprised me mm. Because in London, we're spoiled for choice, right? You've got a little bit of everything and it's such an amazing city. But I was wondering if there's any place that you visited that like left you thinking, wow, this is awesome. Mm. I think I had this, uh, I had this about five, six years ago, it was uh, Indonesia in Jakarta. I was super impressed because I never traveled so far and to see so many great things. Uh, and I think Latin America, would be definitely in the next Latin America. Mm -hmm. I think it's Mexico, Mexico, Peru. I remember I walked into a bar and every drink I've tasted in Lima, in this bar, it was made of ingredients I never heard of apart from. So basically this is the, uh, the bar for, was uh, part of the restaurant of Central and everything, what they were using, there was locals only, local ingredients. So everything what I've tasted, I had like, uh, Pisco, yeah, I got that, and everything else. What he was telling me, like this, is, this, <laughs> is, this, is, this, I, like, I have no idea. And uh, and the reason why, because they were saying like many of those local ingredients, they never reach Europe or never leave Peru because they are so seasonal that they're just not exporting them. Mm -hmm. And that was such an amazing experience for me. Fantastic. Cool. Uh, we finally arrived to our last question, which we ask everyone. Uh, so if you could choose your last drink, what would that be? The last drink? Uh, well, came to my mind the last word, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the last drink, last drink, last word, and uh, then you can bury me. Awesome. Cool, Eric. Thank you very much for the, your time. It was awesome to talk to you. No, pleasure mine, Michele. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Eric. You can find us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media or follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for McKilly, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Besser for Adrian. Thank you for listening.